Every 12 years, millions of Hindus flock to Allahabad, India to take a dip in the Ganges River. For they believe that every 12 years, those who can enter that river will achieve spiritual cleansing. But scores of people get hurt when bathers rush to the waters at the appropriate time. So the solution is purification by proxy. A popular website offers virtual cleansing for Hindus. Pilgrims who want to avoid crowds, chaos, and travel costs can send a passport-sized photo to the site, which then provides virtual absolution when it's dipped into the Ganges River. Well, you know what? The Hindus have it partly right. We do need cleansing, don't we? We need to be washed from our sins. But only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from sin. Not some dot-com company, that's for sure. And no religious rituals can accomplish that. Performing religious rituals will not make us right with God. It is not just devout Hindus who have that problem, is it? It is not just devout Hindus who put their faith in religious rituals. Many religious people in the Western world put their faith in the idea that if you perform the right rituals, you will make yourself right with God. The Jewish Christians that the book of Hebrews was written to were in danger of falling back into their practices, back into their faith in the religious rituals instead of in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to counteract that tendency. Faith in religious rituals will never make us right with God. And Hebrews 9, where we pick up this morning, teaches us not to fall into that religious trap. For there are many devoutly religious people who begin to think that way. All of those religious symbols from the Old Testament sacrificial system were designed by God for the Jewish people to reveal a greater purpose. God instituted those symbols to point us to Jesus Christ. Religious symbols pictured the coming Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle, a tent prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tent, a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Herod's massive temple 
dominated the skyline in Jerusalem as the author of Hebrews wrote these words. But he wasn't thinking of Herod's temple. And he wasn't even thinking of Solomon's temple in their history. He was going all of the way back to the symbol of the first covenant, the old covenant, the classic symbol, which was the tabernacle that God had instituted in the wilderness. The primary symbol of worship under the old covenant was the tabernacle. Literally, the word means tent. For the ancient tabernacle was a tent where God met his people and where the people worshipped God. And there were regulations, he says, under the first covenant that governed the worship in the tabernacle. The word regulations meant an ordinance or a requirement for being righteous or righteous actions in life. Interestingly enough, the word was also used for acquittal in a court case. When someone had violated the law then they would bring the regulations or the documents that justified their actions and they would be acquitted by those regulations. So, the Old Covenant had regulations that governed how you were supposed to live in order to be right with God. But when you inevitably failed, then the Old Covenant also had regulations how to make yourself right again with God. And those regulations were the sacrificial system. It was the way you could be acquitted, you could be forgiven. And it all revolved around the tabernacle where God would meet with his people. So the passage here speaks of two tents in this tabernacle, not one. The first tent was the outer tent or the holy place. And there were three pieces of furniture in the outer tent, but only two are mentioned in this verse. There was the lampstand, which had to be trimmed and lit regularly by the priests in their service. I mean, there were no windows in the the tabernacle, so the lampstand illuminated the room so that the priests could go about their daily work. When Solomon, by the way, built his temple later, the, the, the massive temple in Jerusalem, he put ten lampstands in the holy place. But actually, in Herod's temple, by the first century, they had gone back to only one lampstand in the holy place. The second piece of furniture in the outer tent was the table of showbread or the table of sacred bread. Every Sabbath... Twelve loaves of freshly baked bread were placed on the table. Those twelve loaves represented the twelve tribes of Israel and God's sustaining power for them. The old loaves were removed every Sabbath and were eaten by the priests. And only the priests could enter the holy place and only the priests could eat the loaves of sacred bread from the table. Now all of the elements of the tabernacle have significance. They were all designed by God to point to Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why God devoted some 50, 50 chapters of the Old Testament to the tabernacle? I mean, there's 15 in the book of Exodus alone, but 
when you go to all of the other passages of Scripture, there's something like 50 chapters of recorded Scripture devoted to the details of the tabernacle. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, God devoted two chapters out of the entire Bible for the creation of the entire universe. Two chapters. But he devotes 50 to the details of the tabernacle. Why? Because they picture Jesus Christ. That's why they're so important. They point to Christ. Everything was designed by God in the tabernacle to picture Christ. So everywhere you look in the tabernacle, you should see pictures of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ in picture form. Jesus is the true wonder bread. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It was too good to pass up. But Jesus did say in John chapter 6, what? I am the bread of life, right? I am the bread of life, he said. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He said just before he made that statement, he told the people that it was not Moses who gave them the bread, the true bread from heaven. He's referring to the table of showbread. And the manna, which also is going to be mentioned in a minute here. It is God who gives the people the true and living bread from heaven. So the table of sacred bread symbolized the coming Savior who would meet the deepest needs that humans have for sustaining life. He is the bread of eternal life. Jesus Christ alone can meet those needs. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. The lampstand was a picture of Jesus Christ as the light of of the world. He will spiritually illuminate all who come to God through Christ. So these materials were designed by God to be pictures of Christ long before Christ came to this earth. And Jesus certainly understood that they pointed to him as the Savior, and that's why he mentions those things as he is teaching the people. There was a third piece of furniture in the outer tent, according to Exodus chapter 30. There was a third piece of furniture, and it was the golden altar of incense. The altar of incense, according to Exodus 30, was placed in just in front of the curtain that separated the outer tent from the inner tent. The priests were to burn incense on this altar every morning when they trimmed the lampstand. Now, the whole point of the incense was that it was to be a sweet smell that rose up before God. Now, God, in this arrangement, His presence was in the Holy of Holies, the inner tent. That's where His presence was with the people. And the Shekinah glory hovered over that Holy of Holies. And the the incense was to be a sweet smell to God that He was satisfied with the sacrifices for their sins, and so satisfied with them. And that's why it was placed right here in front of the curtain that separated where the priests were working from the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was symbolized to have been uh, taking up residence. Now, 
the priests burned incense daily, but the high priest also had to light the incense and bring it through the curtain into the, the inner tent on the Day of Atonement. The King James tries to solve the problem. It it would appear that from Hebrews 9 that the author of Hebrews is saying that the the golden altar of incense is inside the Holy of Holies. And we know from Exodus 30 that it was just outside. So the King James tries to solve that problem by saying that it it was the censer that was inside the Holy of Holies And that way, he's referring to the censer here. But the word really focuses on the golden altar of incense. And furthermore, the censer had to be lit outside and taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest when he presented it before the Lord once a year on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews is not making a mistake here. The language is phrased this way because the altar of incense more than the other pieces of the holy place, is directly associated with the Holy of Holies and the inner sanctum where God is. Because it is from the altar of incense, the first act of the high priest on the Day of Atonement was to take the incense into God to symbolize that God was satisfied with what they were doing. And so because it is so associated with the Holy of Holies, it is mentioned that way here. The high priest, once a year, would take the censer and he would enter the inner tent. Actually, he would enter the inner tent at least two, three, maybe four times that day of atonement. He would enter with the incense. He would enter with the blood that was from the sacrifice that paid for his sins personally, then he would have to go back out and he would get more blood and he would bring it in to pay for the sins of the people. So he probably entered the inner sanctum, the inner holy of holies, three times that day on the Day of Atonement, but just that one time once a year. The only other piece of furniture in the inner tent was the Ark of the Covenant itself with the golden cherubim on either side, and inside the ark were three things that all symbolized how God took care of his people. There was the manna, which was the bread, that symbolized how Christ was the bread of life. There was the rod of Aaron, which budded, symbolizing new life, and Christ is the means of new life. And there were the flat stones that contained the Ten Commandments. All of these were inside the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus, we know, he said himself, he came to fulfill the law. So that we, who can't live by the law, could have eternal life because Jesus came to fulfill the law. So, the pot of manna and the rod of Aaron were not in the Ark when Solomon built the temple. They probably disappeared when the Philistines captured the ark during the time of Saul, and they're never seen again. The ark did still contain the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets in Solomon's day, but both the ark and the tablets were not found in the temple when the Roman general Pompey in the first century invades Jerusalem and 
And he records what happened. He invades Jerusalem, he takes the temple, and he goes into the Holy of Holies. And he is shocked to find nothing. There's not a thing in the Holy of Holies. Here is the most sacred place for all of Israel. He's just conquered Israel and the God of Israel, and there's not a thing in that room. And he makes a big point of it. Where the Ark of the Covenant went, we do not know. Jewish tradition says that Jeremiah, before the Babylonians invaded in 586 B.C., that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it in the mountain where Moses went up to be with God. In a cave. He hid it in a cave. We don't know that. Nobody's ever found the Ark of the Covenant. Movies notwithstanding. <laughs> On top of the Ark were the cherubim. In between the two Jerobim was the holiest place in all of Israel. It was the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Isn't that a beautiful expression of God? The mercy seat. This was the place where God met with his people. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. Here's where the high priest encountered the very presence of God in the days of Moses. The Greek word, by the way, for mercy seat is a word that means place of propitiation. Propitiation is a word that means that God is satisfied with the sacrifice for sins. This was the place where God was satisfied with the sacrifice for our sins. And John uses the word propitiation in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 to refer to Jesus Christ. When he writes, And he, Christ himself, is the propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. He's the mercy seat. So Jesus is the mercy seat of God. He satisfies God for us. These elements of the tabernacle were all then pictures of Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves us from our sins. He leads us into the inner tent where we can enjoy the very presence of God at the mercy seat, which is Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can be right with God. For He is your mercy seat. No matter what you've done, He's the mercy seat for you that can make you right with God. Author Robert Weber was traveling on a plane from San Francisco to Los Angeles a few years ago. He was sitting next to the window and he was reading a Christian book and the man next to him, obviously from the eastern hemisphere of our globe, asked, Are you a religious man? Well, yes, Robert said. He's the author of many books on worship and that sort of thing. He's a professor. He said, I, I am too, the man responded. And they began talking about religion. And in the middle of the conversation, Robert Weber asked him, Can you give me a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith as a religious man? Well, yes, the man said. Here's his one-liner. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. Well, there's some good thoughts in that, and so they talked about that. And then uh, Robert Weber said, would you like a one-liner that captures the Christian faith? And the man responded, yes, certainly. 
So he said, we are all part of the problem, but there is only one named Jesus who is part of the solution. Our faith is in Jesus. Religious rituals or regulations limited access to God. Verse 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. There are regulations that governed all that they did. This was not something they invented. This was something God prescribed all of these regulations for them. The priests ministered in the outer tent every day, completing the daily worship of God. They would light the lamps, they'd burn the incense, they'd change the bread once a week. They would slaughter the animals for sacrifices. They daily led the people in worship. But the high priest alone entered the inner tent, and he did it only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. He'd take blood for sacrifice for his own sins, and then he would take a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the sacrifices were very specific. The sacrifices atoned for the sins of ignorance. Did you notice that? Not for the presumptuous sins, but for the sins of ignorance. In fact, the Old Testament law said there was no sacrifice for presumptuous sins. Sins of ignorance referred to those sins that the people committed when they fell into sin by temptation or failure in those ways, but not the sins of outright rebellion against God. There was no sacrifice for the sins of outright rebellion against God. See, there is a line that gets crossed where man cannot any longer presume upon God's forgiveness and God's grace. Now, you and I do not know the human heart. So you and I never know when that line is crossed. But God knows the human heart. And there comes a point of rebellion against God that crosses that line. And only God knows that point for each human. But God does not promise to forgive presumptuous sins once you've crossed that line. So we dare not presume upon His grace. And so often today people presume upon the grace of God. I've heard it, you've heard it. Well, I know this is not right. I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it and God will forgive me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're presuming upon the grace of a holy God. Are you so sure? Yes, it's a mercy seat. Yes, he's a God of grace. But don't presume upon that grace. And fight God anyway. Notice also that the high priest entered not without blood. Never could he enter the holy place, the inner tent, the place of God's holy presence. Never, ever, ever could he enter that place without blood for himself or for the people. 
Never. This was the place of God's holy presence. And he dare not enter without the blood that atoned for sin. He dared not enter the presence of a holy God without a blood sacrifice. Access to God was limited under the old covenant. It was limited to the high priest one day a year, but it was also limited by the necessity of blood sacrifice and blood atonement. The elaborate process then taught them something. It was designed to teach them something. You don't come to God any old way you want to come to God. You are not the center of the universe. I am not the center of the universe. God is. You don't come to a holy God any old way you happen to want to come to God. Boy, does that fly in the face of our culture today, doesn't it? Humans want a human-centered God. God wants God-centered humans. There's a world of difference. The only acceptable payment for sin was a payment in blood. Jesus is the only way to God because he is, of course, that ultimate blood payment for your sins and for mine. We cannot have access to God. We cannot connect with God without that blood payment to atone for our sins. And Christ has made it for you and for me. So all of this points forward to Christ as our blood atonement for sin. He leads us into the presence of God, not just not just some special high priest getting to go before God, but all of us. He leads us into God's presence on the basis of the blood atonement that Christ has paid for our sins, so he is the only way. This is where the author of Hebrews is going here in chapter 9, setting up for that point. Wayne Cordero, pastor of New Hope Christian Fellowship in Hawaii, writes that some time ago some wonderful people in the church gave... Wayne and his wife Anna, a dinner certificate to a nice restaurant for $100. So he thought, wow, $100, bucks. let us go for it, right? He says he got, they got all cleaned up, they found a free evening. He, he said he even washed and waxed his car because when your car is going to, you know, when the valet is going to come park your car, you know, he wanted at least his Ford Pinto to look halfway clean anyway. <laughs> The night came, they were excited, they went to this ritzy, ritzy restaurant that they could never afford to eat at. They went in, they were given this table um, with a candle, a candlelit table uh, overlooking a moonlit lagoon in Hawaii. It was beautiful, he said, wonderful. They looked at the menu and said, we've got a hundred bucks, let's buy the most expensive meal on the menu, why not? Let's go for it. So they bought the most expensive meal on the menu. And they enjoyed their whole evening. And when the bill came, he said, Honey, why don't you give, them, give me the certificate? She said, I don't have the certificate. I thought you had it. He said, You have to have it. You're supposed to have it. You're the wife. She said, I don't have it. And he, he said he thought, Whoa, <laughs> we're in deep yogurt here. Here we are, we look rich, we act rich, we even smell rich. But if we don't have that certificate, we have nothing. 
And then he said there are times in our lives when we can look holy, we can act holy, we can even smell holy. But without coming to God through Christ, we have nothing. Jesus Christ's blood validates everything for you and for me. Third principle, religious service never cleansed sinful hearts. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time when he's writing. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, the flesh, imposed until a time of reformation. What a great argument here. What a great thesis he's building to. The Holy Spirit, he said, is explaining through all of this information that the true way into the holy place was never revealed while the old way was still in force for you Jewish Christians. With the first tent still standing, the true way into God's presence could not be seen. It could only be pictured. You have to leave the old way and come to the new way to understand and enjoy being in the very presence of God. All of the old ways, he says, were a parable, literally. A parable. The word symbol means a parable. In fact, it's the Greek word from which we get the word parable. The tabernacle, the temple, that was, the sacrificial system, that was one grand parable of Jesus Christ. That was its purpose by God. What's a parable? It's a story that... that is taken from earthly things that illustrates a deeper, truer meaning. So the whole Old Testament system and all of its elaborate regulations and rituals and things that they must do, what was it? It was a story that illustrated something much deeper, much grander, much greater, and that is Jesus Christ. And it illustrated a temple, a house of God, that was much greater than any earthly temple. It was the temple where? In heaven. It was one grand parable of Christ. And it was designed, the regulations were imposed, he says, until the time of reformation. That's the time of Christ. The word reformation means a new order. So the Old Testament was a process designed by God to eventually lead to a new order of life in Jesus Christ. Author Gordon MacDonald, in an article for Leadership Journal, tells about seeing the cover of People magazine And on the cover, it featured a photo of Kate Goslin, you know, the John and Kate reality TV with the eight kids and all of that, and now they're going through a divorce, and she's become a professional celebrity. And this is after all of that process was going on. She was on the front cover of People magazine. He was going through the checkout line, and he saw it and caught his attention. 
says the Kate Goslin on the front cover of People is, is a very attractive woman because, because before her photo shoot for the magazine, she spent 20 hours getting her hair done, her makeup on. She got extensions. I don't even know what extensions are, but she got them. And a bunch of other things. Her face newly made up, some said lifted up. She was a new woman. The result of her 20 hours in the makeup studio were impressive. It was a lovely picture of her, and she was a beautiful person. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I had 30 or 40 hours, could they make me into George Clooney or something? You know? No. No! <laughs> that was awfully quick, Brian. On the cover, under her face, were these words. I'm starting over. I'm starting over. He says, for the first time in his life, whether we believe him or not, he bought the magazine. Because he had to understand what she meant by starting over. He said, in the end, she meant just what the picture says. That you have a new life when you have new hair and new makeup. You are a new person. That's not starting over. You can paint the barn all you want. It doesn't change the manure inside. (laughs) Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. Or calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian any more than calling your Chevy a BMW makes it a BMW. You can't change the inside but what you do on the outside, right? Doesn't change anything inside. But that's what many people think starting over is. Religion that deals only with turning over a new leaf or making new resolutions or yes, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to look holy. I'm going to smell holy. I'm going to act holy. But it doesn't change anything inside. And in the end, it doesn't work, right? God's way in Christ, that's the new order. Literally, the word reformation used here means to set things right with God. How do you get things right with God? By resolutions? By determination? No by a change of heart. All of those religious regulations were imposed until the time when things could be set right with God by Jesus Christ. Do you want to be right with God? You can only be right with God through Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the only bridge to God. It's the only way, but As we sung earlier, the cross is powerful. For the the cross of Christ changes lives. Kay Strom and Michelle Rickett, in their book, Forgotten Girls, Stories of Hope and Courage, tell a story from one of their sources, a woman by the name Nassim, tell a story from Iran, 
about how God is changing lives in Iran. The mother of Dory died when Dory was quite young. Her father remarried. Her new stepmother constantly hurled insults, beat her, made life miserable for Dory. At one point, her stepmother actually started a fire in the house intending to burn Dory alive. But she was saved. She lived. As she grew, Dory knew for certain that she could never, ever be loved. No one could ever love her. When she reached adolescence, her family arranged a marriage for her, but that only proved to her even more that no one could love her in her marriage. It was the same. There was a nice park not far from her house, and for long hours, Dory would go and sit on the outskirts of that park. One older woman who came often was a woman by the name of Nahid, a widow who lived with her son. Nahid was a Christian, and she desired to share God's love with people. Some days she would ride several buses and leave literature in seat compartments for people. Other days she would just walk around in the park, praying for opportunities to share. One day, Nahid had a great abundance of literature, Christian literature, with her, which of course is illegal to pass out in Iran. It was all carefully hidden under a, in a basket under a whole bunch of apples on the top. And she went to the park looking for somebody to share this with. There were a group of women in the park. That was very unusual to have a large group of women. And so she went over to the women and they spent most of the day talking and she was sharing her Christian literature. Near the end of the day she was very tired and Nahid went over to a park bench and she just sat down. And at that time the police showed up. And they began to arrest the women who were apparently actually there uh, demonstrating for women's rights in Iran. They arrested the women. And then they came over and they saved their aggressive, most aggressive behavior for Naid. They began to shake her, make sure everything would fall out of her, her garments. And they were yelling at her. And then they went to her basket and they started reaching down inside the basket and, and, and she started to panic and she began to wonder, is there any literature left in there? I didn't check. They dumped out the basket of apples, no literature. So finally they left her alone because they couldn't find anything. She went home that day. But what she didn't know is in her hidden spot near the park, sat Dory through all of this all day long and she went and found a crumpled piece of paper one of the pieces of literature and she picked it up she put it in her garments and she went home and she opened it up and the first thing she read is God is love could it be could God love me she had learned that God was a judge. She had learned that God was hard and holy. God is love? Could it be? Dory had to find out. Well, not too long after that, Dory went with her husband outside of Iran on a business trip, for he was a businessman. They left the country. They were... They were eventually invited to a gathering of Iranians who turned out just happened to be Christians. 
And there she heard the amazing message again. The pastor said, God is love. God loves every person he created, and he sent his son to die for your sins. You don't have to do all of these rituals. You don't have to go through all of these hoops. God loves you. And his son was sent to die for you on the cross. And he invited everyone to talk with him afterwards. Dory wanted to talk with him, so she and her husband went up to talk with him. And the first thing her husband said is, we don't want to receive this message but we'd like you to pray with us. Okay, pastor was glad to do that. And in that moment, Dory's life changed forever because she said, as the pastor prayed, she asked Jesus to be her Savior and for God to change her life. Quietly, she didn't voice it. In time, her husband also came to Christ. And Nassim, an Iranian Christian, reported to the authors of the book, you would not believe the change in Dory. Only God could change someone the way she was changed. She is confident and joyful, truly a bold minister of God's love in one of the largest churches in Iran, though I dare not tell you where. God is changing lives in places like Iran. He can orchestrate all of that sort of thing. And God can change your life too. But it changes from where? The inside out. You can't make it happen. You can't resolve to do it. He's got to change you from the inside out. As you accept what he has done for you. Father, we know that's the power of the cross. And so many people want to be changed. They want to change themselves, really. And I pray for each person in this room to realize that no one can change themselves, but that you can change them by the power of your cross at work in their lives from the inside out. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. And I pray that each person here this morning would respond if they have not already done so and say, Lord, I accept your gift of Jesus Christ. I know I can never fulfill all the regulations and the requirements and all of the rituals, but I trust you. Save me and forgive me for my sins and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen.